What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Tell me about this new friend you made, Josh. You should see this guy's record collection. It's Jay-Z, it's Thin Lizzy, it's Mozart. His taste is democratic. It's The Goonies and it's Citizen Kane. They don't distinguish between high and low. It's wonderful. When did The Goonies become a good movie? Preach it, Ad Rock. Come on, The Goonies is... Oh, well, it really actually doesn't hold up too well. (laughs) It doesn't, does it? Ben Stiller with the Beastie Boys, Adam Horowitz, and that clip from writer-director Noah Baumbach's latest, While We're Young. In the film, a friendship with a couple of 20-somethings triggers midlife crises for Stiller and his wife, played by Naomi Watts. And, Josh, in a completely foreseeable twist, watching While We're Young triggered my own midlife crisis. That man on wire tattoo looks great. Our review of While We're Young, plus our top five midlife crisis movies, and the first ever Film Spotting Madness champion. All that and more. I think this thing's infected. Don't worry, though, it's not the bad stuff. Ahead on Film Spotting. Spotting is brought to you by Shutterstock.com. With over 2.6 million high-quality video clips, Shutterstock helps you take your creative projects to the next level. New accounts take 20% off only footage clips by going to Shutterstock.com and using offer code FILM415. We're also brought to you by MUBI, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films up this week, Josh, the immigrant, no, not the James Gray, Walking Phoenix immigrant, but the Charlie Chaplin immigrant. This year marks the centennial celebration of the creation of Charlie Chaplin's immortal character, the Tramp. And why not? In honor of the Tramp's birthday, Mubi is showing one of his most beloved comic shorts, an unforgettable mixture of physical comedy, directorial prowess, and sharp social commentary. It is wonderful if you haven't seen The Immigrant. Also up on Mubi, Boarding Gate, with the release of French auteur Olivier Assayas' acclaimed Clouds of Sils Maria in cinemas now. Mubi's showing one of this versatile director's most underappreciated films, his globetrotting mashup of psychodrama and thriller starring Agia Argento in one of her most fierce roles. I'll say this, because I've also seen Boarding Gate. It is a fierce role, a good performance for sure from Agia Argento, and a mashup of psychodrama and thriller probably is the best brief description of that movie. One, I'm still not totally sure how I feel about. And maybe that's a good thing. Sometimes with Aseas films, they take a little while to to really sink in. Might have to catch it again on Mubi. One other highlight here is Four Adventures of Renette and Mirabelle. Mubi describes it as Broad City by way of the French New Wave. This is Eric Romer's four-episode collection of short stories involving the loves, life, and pratfalls of two newly minted girlfriends. Everyday Mubi's curators introduce a new title and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Listeners of Film Spotting can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com slash Film Spotting to redeem now. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Film Spotting. You're listening to Film Spotting with Josh and I trading in our sensible family sedans for a pair of matching convertibles. Our wives suggested this week's top five topic, midlife crisis movies. It was cool that they let us drag race in your subdivision. No one can resist Fast and Furious Fever. That top five and your 2015 Film Spotting Madness champion later in the show. 
plus a preview of the upcoming Chicago Critics Film Festival with Steve Procopi, a.k.a. Capone, from Ain't It Cool News. But first, While We're Young is the latest from Woody Allen-esque director Noah Baumbach. It co-stars Naomi Watts, and it features 40-something documentarians discussing their impending mortality and the nature of objective truth. Adam, if this isn't your favorite film of 2015 so far, something has gone seriously wrong. They made a house out of twigs, and the wolf came. He blows it down. Yeah, but what happens in the middle? Keep wanting to do this little piggy went to market, but that's with the toes. I didn't know you guys wanted kids. You guys should do it. Yeah. You would make such good parents. I really loved your film. Was that scene with the dogs around the garbage? How did you stage that? I said, hey, shoot those dogs. Beautiful. You want to come get a bite with us? Why do you suddenly want to hang out with a couple of 25-year-olds? We were just 25. I mean, we weren't, but, you know, it'll be fun. We met this interesting couple. What's the rumpus, Rednecks? I like how engaged they are in everything. It's like their apartment is full of everything we once threw out, but it looks so good the way they have it. As is often the case, I knew very little about the details of While We're Young going into it. And even though I did tap into the fact that this movie was right in my cinematic wheelhouse within about 20 minutes, I swear I didn't fully realize, Josh, until your clever little tease there, how much it could have been specially designed in a lab just for me. Naomi Watts co-stars, as we've said, as Cornelia, a relatively successful movie producer. Though she doesn't produce her husband's films, Josh, played by Ben Stiller, has been stuck on the same doc project for over eight years and isn't big on collaboration. Now, I don't have strong feelings one way or another about Stiller, but Watts is, undeniably, one of my favorite actors. You describe writer-director Noah Baumbach as Woody Allen-esque, a label that has always followed him. Yes, I'm a Woody Allen fan. And yes, Allen aficionados will likely find a lot here that feels familiar. Aside from the obvious neurotic New York intellectual upper-class connections and the classical music interludes, Josh could be a protege of Allen's own unsuccessful documentarian Cliff from Crimes and Misdemeanors. He even has a go-to intellectual he's constantly filming who instantly reminded me of the TV scientist who quotes Albert Einstein to open husbands and wives. The way Cornelia and Josh confront various life and marital issues after meeting an energetic 20-something hipster couple, Jamie and Darby, played by Adam Driver and Amanda Seyfried, and their best friends, Fletcher and Marina, become parents for the first time, is similar to what Gabe and Judy, Alan and Mia Farrow and Husbands and Wives undergo when their best friends announce they're getting a divorce. Documentarians discussing the nature of truth, there are actually three generations of doc filmmakers here. Jamie, aspiring and ambitious, Josh, jaded and resentful, and Josh's father-in-law, Leslie, played by Charles Grodin, level-headed and lionized. Leslie strikes me as a stand-in for the legendary doc filmmaker Frederick Wiseman, who is referenced in the movie along with D.A. Pennebaker and The Maisels. Wiseman, Pennebaker, The Maisels, all major parts of a University of Chicago continuing education course I taught called Cinema Verite and the Problem of Truth. Hell, Stiller's character even teaches a continuing education <laughs> class with a similar <laughs> focus. And for the record, I too open with a clip from Nanook of the North, but I was able to work the PowerPoint properly. Nice. I'm glad for you. Finally, musing on aging and mortality, topics I'm mildly obsessed with. You referenced our movie tattoos earlier. I think almost all of my choices related to death. So yeah, quite predictably, I suppose, I liked While We're Young a lot. But what about you, Josh? You appreciate Naomi Watts, but you had no trouble taking Marion Cotillard over her in round one of Film Spotting Madness. Woody Allen's movies, eh, you've seen a few and like fewer. 
Wiseman, Pennebaker, the Mazels, mostly, I believe, blind spots for you. And you're far too well-adjusted to devote your time to dwelling on death. Did you then, quite predictably, dislike While We're Young? And what do you make of the movie's potential broader appeal? The film I just described for everybody probably sounds pretty niche, if not made only for me, maybe for English major cinephiles. But totally coincidentally, we caught the same Saturday night screening in the suburbs with a decent-sized crowd, most of them seeming to be making a date night out of it with their significant others, like we were. Are the concerns here universal enough to appeal to, well, anybody other than Woody Allen fans with a death fetish? Good question. Um, I don't know if I can answer it. I happen to be an English major. I happen to be a cinephile, so maybe it was somehow made for me as well. I'm also in the age range of the central couple here. And I, I certainly hope our film spotting madness votes aren't going to be used forevermore as ammunition oh, against us. Oh, I've got us. them booked. Because <laughs> I didn't write my own down, let alone yours. So I'm going to have to do some research there. Naomi Watts is good here. She's good, especially in the beginning as a comedian. So I did appreciate that about the movie. And if anything, I would have expected that I would have liked this because I have liked every previous Noah Baumbach film that I've seen. Not enthusiastically so. There are others who like them far more than me, but I have appreciated all of them that I've seen so far. Yet, I think the reason While We're Young Left Me Cold may be related a little bit to that question about whether this has any wider appeal beyond those niche interests you mentioned. It's not all that much about a midlife crisis, which I think is what is going to appeal to people and is how it's being sold. I think it wants to be about a midlife crisis, but I had the feeling that fairly early on, this film realized it didn't have all that much to say about this generational gap that it begins with between these two couples. There's some wry humor that it gets out of that, and I enjoyed those parts of the film, but then it starts to move in a different direction and goes towards, well, it it kind of goes in a number of different directions throughout its running time, which is relatively short and not in a way that always interconnected for me. I felt like they would address a topic and not quite be able to get their hands around it. So they'd move on to something else. So they touch on Stiller and Watts characters childlessness. This is something that comes up here and there, but they never quite get a handle of what they want to say about that. Then we go into this extended bit about the Adam Driver character's artistic ambitions, and that really could be something that a movie has nothing to do with midlife crises or the relationships between these two couples. It's more of a question of, as you mentioned, art, objective truth, documentary filmmaking. What does that all mean? doesn't really wrap its arms around that either. So I found the movie overall a little scattered and, and a bit thin. Hmm. I didn't. I disagree on both counts. And the big part of it here, which, of course, is totally subjective, the biggest reason why I appreciated this movie is I think it's really funny. It's a comedy, and it made me laugh. It made me laugh a lot, and I've seen it twice, and I just laughed even more the second time. And I certainly laugh more than I have at any other previous Baumbach film, even more so than The Squid and the Whale, which we reviewed here on the show favorably. And it is a movie that got some laughs for me, but it didn't connect with me the way this movie does. And yes, 
as I said, comedy is really subjective. You either laugh or you don't. But we can talk about how the humor is written and directed and performed. And we'll come back to some of the other things. I think there's actually a lot to say here. And I wonder if maybe the wry humor it derives from this generational conflict is sufficient. I think the humor it mines there is probably enough. And by the end of the film, Josh, I really did feel that all these little things it introduces, for example, it really isn't about documentary filmmaking at all. That really is just a ruse. That's a way to get at the Ben Stiller character's own sort of self-loathing and how it comes back in the oh, end. It spends an awful to factor lot of in time on the plot mechanics. To his movement or not. No, it really is. About it's it's this kind of the end of the film. No, the documentary that Jamie is making, the movie gives itself over to that process. Yeah, but it's really about and, the relationships and the effect it has on their dynamic. Oh, I found it really distracting. Well, back to the humor. I think that that notion, I mentioned the word connect. My favorite line in the movie is one where it's pretty early. They're out to dinner. This is really the first chance where they're getting to meet the couple after they've attended his continuing education class. And it's pretty clear right away that they're they're very different. They're hearing about their lives and it doesn't match the lives of the older couple at all. And Watts is shocked that they actually are married. She says it's so old fashioned and she's thinking that's bizarre because there's nothing old-fashioned about them and drivers like yeah we got married in an old water tower and there was a slip and slide and you know the line's much better the actual line and the delivery is much better than mine of course but it's funny because obviously it's so incredibly hipsterific but also because it's clearly a moment where she thought she could finally relate to them on something where she realized okay maybe we're not so different after all and it turns out it just further confirms how different they are and i love the delivery it's not dwelled on it's not delivered as a setup and a punchline it's conversational it's natural and it goes by really fast if you're not paying attention to the conversation you can completely miss it that's just my favorite line but there are a lot of lines like that in the movie and a lot of conversations like that that really work for me and i asked you about its broader appeal and you disagreed on it having any sort of universality but that whole movie, as I said, I think it's predicated on this desire to connect. And that's where I think I appreciated the humor here more than other Baumbach films. There's that go-to cliche about feeling sometimes like you're laughing more at characters in a movie than really laughing with them. And that's my reaction to some of Baumbach's stuff. And I enjoy it. Huh. It's fun, too. But even Squid and the Whale, that is my experience. There's a line, though, in this movie where he's showing his movie finally. Josh is showing his epic documentary that he's not finished to Charles Grodin, who was once his mentor. And the mentor says that he was uncomfortable. And Josh tries to rationalize it by saying something like, maybe your discomfort was because you were disturbed. Like, that's actually a strength of the movie. And Grodin says, no, he was uncomfortable because he was really bored. That's my experience with something like Margot at the Wedding. Here, you've got a film that strikes me as genuine and uncynical in showing characters who really do want to connect with other people and really do want to just be better people as a person, as a husband, as a friend, as a professional, whatever it is. And I think Stiller's character in particular is really trying and really failing at that. And that failing for me, Josh, and that longing is where most of the humor here is derived. I responded to that. The documentary stuff for me is just part of the bigger picture and, again, how it affects those relationships. That's interesting that you bring up the accusation that sometimes his movies seem to be laughing at the characters because I've never quite felt that in his previous films. I won't say that I felt it here, but I will say it tends more towards that direction because these are the thinnest characters I've seen in a Baumbach film. Mm. I would say absolutely in something like The Squid and the Whale that Laura Linney and Jeff Daniels are creating much more. Yes, they're in a way 
more unlikable people. For sure. But they're far more interesting and real and someone that, even though I haven't had experiences like that couple, can relate to in a way. Even Greta Gerwig in Francis Ha is a much deeper character exploration than what we get here. And Margot at the Wedding as well, the Nicole Kidman character. Again, a very, you know, loathsome person on the surface. But those movies all dig very deeply into what's driving these people to make the despicable decisions that they do so in a way that we come to understand them. And I did feel like this was a movie that never quite got a grasp on the characters themselves, which would allow us to go to that deeper level. Hipsterific is a good word to describe the first maybe 20 minutes as they're portraying this younger couple. Sure. And there's some humor out of that. A lot of it is it's it's pretty easy humor. And we know right away that Baumbach is going to go deeper than this. This isn't all it's going to be, okay? There's going to be more to this couple than this facade that they're putting on. And sure, we do find that out. But again, what what is it that we find out? Who are who are these real kids beyond what they wear and their, you know, record collections and those sorts of things? I'm glad we got to that, but it really does go into this direction about Jamie's documentary, which once again has nothing to do with a generational conflict. There's a lot of talking in this movie about, well, is it because they're young? Have we changed? These are all things that they want to explore. But essentially where the movie goes is into these questions of what is artistic truth? And what are and that's not at all are, what I are took separate. away from this film There's at an, any point. The climactic confrontation is all about this idea of objective truth when it's we're getting really a speech not, though. It's at about, Lincoln Center. It's we're about get- Josh and his character and how he loses that battle. That's all it's about. Yeah, but what they're talking about is the idea of objective truth in documentary filmmaking. And but Baumbach doesn't care about the that. Charles I agree Grodin, with you on that. Well, the movie spends an awful lot of time on something it doesn't care about, and it gives over its main narrative thrust to something then that it doesn't really care about. I think that character... The Ben Stiller character, maybe to a fault, is the narrative thrust of the film, and that all just serves that. You're listening to Film Spotting. We're discussing and disagreeing about the new film from Noah Baumbach while we're young. A couple things. Of course, the Francis Ha comparison doesn't completely hold up because you would hope that that character is a little more well-developed. It's not an ensemble piece. It really is about her all the time. Yes, there are other characters. I think Adam Driver's even in that one, too. Well, but it's right. all about how they bounce it's off It's a very her. similar milieu, though. I, I, I mean, don't Just because a movie it's has more milieu. characters doesn't mean well, it, it does. shouldn't he have tries. to live up to a standard of developing them. Well, we disagree on how well they develop the characters, but I would say that I'd hope there's a little more focus on her when she's the focal point of the film. And here we have a character who kind of ends up being the focus in the Ben Stiller character, but each character, there are at least four key pieces, you I could argue maybe, six, who all get some development. They're all not just there to be the butt of jokes. Maybe that's part of what left me down about this movie, too, is that it does become the Ben Stiller character story when what I had kind of hoped for was, again, this combination of couples at different ages and how all those relationships will interact. And instead, what we get is another variation about the filmmaker struggling with his creative process. Yeah. It's just it's just not as interesting to me as what the movie started out with these four characters and how they reacted to each other's life experiences. Yeah, it's interesting because I felt that same disappointment, and I suppose I still feel that disappointment. But every time I think about the Naomi Watts' character's role in this film, more so than the Darby character, I keep coming back to all the scenes I can remember her being 
a key player in and watching her character and what she goes through being just as important as Ben Stiller's character in the movie, opening with her and him and ending with her and him. And so most of her scenes are early on. You can focus, though, so much on the fact that there is this third act that really heavily features Stiller and the plot a little bit goes into overdrive. But she's still a key part of all that. So I can't hold too much of that against Bombback. Maybe don't flirt with a shaman. He was telling me about his boat. What? I wish you'd look at me the way you look at Jamie and Darby. I look at you that way? No, you don't. You used to. When we first met, you were like you are with them. You wooed me with romantic emails. It wouldn't make sense for me to send you emails now. We're in the same room all the time. The style is another thing here that stuck out to me, and I'm hesitant. We've already compared this to other Baumbach films. All of them I've only seen once, and all of them a long time ago, except Francis Ha. And that was a film that makes great use of black and white. It's hard, at least from my perspective, to really screw up black and white. It looks wonderful, especially when you're shooting New York. But I've never really cared about what he's doing visually. I'm always paying attention to the characters. I'm paying attention to the dialogue. And look, I'm not arguing this is Tarkovsky or Malick or Martin Scorsese, but of course it isn't aiming to be and it doesn't need to be. And I really did enjoy how he uses the camera and the editing here to enhance the comedy and to underscore what I think is one of the key themes. There's this first musical interlude. There's a montage that you probably didn't enjoy because it really does highlight these different lifestyles, the different generations. We see Darby and Jamie at home putting in the howling on VHS, juxtaposed with Josh and Cornelia Yeah, in that bed. was good. I like that. She's sleeping and Josh is scanning through Netflix. But there's just this nice cross-cutting that shows the different rituals of these groups. And you mentioned this earlier to a fault of the movie. I think it nails how they are defined by these rituals, or at least they define each other by them, and we define them, the characters we see on screen, and usually the people around us, by how we perceive those rituals. And that theme that comes back, it's introduced at the beginning and it comes back at the end of the film, this notion of everything sort of being binary. You know, it's either this or it's that. And I think we can all fall prey to that kind of perception of the world sometimes. It's ones or zeros, right? There's no in-between, there's nothing else. And at one point, Groden's character does say to Stillers, why does it have to be just one way or the other? But that's how he views the world. There's a winner and a loser in everything. So that's a through line that ran throughout this entire film. In terms of feeling kind of messy and all over the place, there's a real structure to this film that I thought played out perfectly. And I'll just mention one more visual touch, though I've got a lot of others I could point to. There's a similar interlude later when Jamie is showing his footage. He's screaming some of his footage, and it's completely dialogue-free. There's basically a mini-play that unfolds on screen in about two and a half minutes that does unfold in front of us without the need of any words to explain what's going on. We understand it all. We get the full emotional kick of it. We watch what Josh is completely suffering through just because of shots and cuts. I've never noticed that before with Boundback. That would, I think that's the same scene, though, where Josh leaves his father-in-law's house where they're having an argument And the next cut is to Jamie's loft, Mm -hmm. which they're all screening this movie that he doesn't know about. And the father-in-law is there. I mean, there's some continuity issues there. I didn't understand. Was this another day? How did the father-in-law beat him there? I mean, I'm surprised. first when you see him, it's a little surprising. Yeah, but there's no way that would make sense. Well, you don't get the sense that literally it just happened. Do you? I got the sense he left his father-in-law's and then Mm, went to that loft. But that, you know, that's a minor quibble. But we can do an experiment here about the visual nature of this film because you've actually saw this in two different places. And the screening we were both at, the showing over the weekend, 
I thought the picture was really dim. I actually was taken aback at how muddy a lot of these scenes were. Was there a, a better quality in the earlier screening you had, or is that just me being picky? No, I didn't really notice. But then again, that's the way, unfortunately, movies always look, especially at these suburban movie theaters that aren't putting a whole lot of effort into But you into saw it earlier at a different theater, I, I can't guess. compare them. Okay. I can't say well, there's a difference. I, I, it struck me. It stood out to me. I also don't think of Baumbach as a stylist, a visual stylist first. But it struck me, especially there's this extended sequence when, when things start to fade a little bit. And I felt the movie kind of thinking, OK, what else are we going to do with this? The ayahuasca sequence where they go with Darby and Jamie to uh, dr- take this drink and have this mystical vomit up experience your demons. and vomit up your demons, um, you know, which which is funny. Again, it's it's maybe the third or fourth time we've seen them trying something new, but it, it's still funny as it starts. And it then it goes on and on and they stretch it out. It's also very dark and dingy in this house. And I guess I just didn't. Listen, there's a lot in this movie. It's very intellectually ambitious, and I'm not saying it's empty-headed. I mean, when you when you start your film with a Ibsen quote from a play, you you know that the movie has Maybe ideas. The biggest misstep. <laughs> it has ideas and it wants to explore them. So I'm not saying it's empty-headed, but I feel that it didn't quite know what to do with some of those ideas, or at least, it, bottom line, it did not flesh them out in a cinematically invigorating way. Hmm. And I felt that invigoration. I did. One other one I do want to mention is outside a party. There's a scene where they go to surprise their friends that they've kind of turned their backs on because they're hanging out all the time with the younger couple. And it turns out they didn't get invited to this big party that the older couple, their best friends are throwing. And he says, no, come on in. And they've just had this long fight. And Ben Stiller's character says, there's no way we're coming in there, right? But you don't even hear the full line because Bombach cuts at there's no way, just sharply. They don't even get the word way out, and he cuts to them being inside the party. Yeah, they're sitting They've there. That's begrudgingly nice given it. It is a nice little visual touch that really does add a lot of humor. And leading up to that, this is something we hadn't seen there in the movie before, is the quick intercutting between those four characters, between two shots and single shots, and the way the close-ups tighten and get a little more extreme, the more their whole conversation gets a little more extreme. Again, small things, maybe, not bravura touches, but you don't need them in this type of setting or this milieu, and I think they really do add a lot to the film. Let's talk about the performances a little bit more, because I, I do feel Watts was good until she got pushed a little bit to the sidelines there for the second half. Stiller, I, you know, I I think he seemed to struggle here. And, and I don't know if it's this sense of where this could have gone much more broadly in terms of comedy. And he wasn't quite sure how far to go in that direction. I've seen him, basically, I've seen him give better serial comic performances on other films. He's he's given one for Baumbach in Greenberg, which I think is also a better Baumbach film. I wasn't quite sure what to make of Driver. This is not having watched Girls. This was really my first, you know, full experience of him. And there was something about him that I just always seemed intriguing. He's, mm-hmm. he's got uh, an interesting presence, even in Inside Lewin Davis and the right. brief part he has Memorable. there. Very interesting face. And just wanted to see what he brought to the film. I feel like there was never a real handle on that character either. And understanding that there is a plot reveal that means to so we're meant to be kept at remove towards the beginning but it was like doubly obvious to me that we were meant to be kept at remove i didn't buy jamie at all at the beginning to a degree you're not supposed to exactly okay (laughs) 
you can't. But I didn't buy him later either. And and there's just there's again, I'm going to go back to his other films where there whatever you feel about them in terms of how they're treating their characters or where the humor is coming from. I felt this authenticity where the people on the screen were who they were immediately and driver in particular here and stiller as well. I just never got that sense. And, and for the driver character, just when it should have been getting deeper. I felt like instead we were just getting further and further away from him as a real person. Yeah, I guess, Josh, all I can say is I felt like their identities were constantly in flux. So I didn't feel like they ever did have a firm grasp on who they are. I thought that was totally fitting for their characters. And that said, that gets back to one of the things I really love about the movie. And the only way for me that the whole notion of artistic truth or being meta in any way factors into this film is really this idea it's not an accident that the word real life comes up a couple times. It's actually the last two words that are said at the beginning of the movie, the opening scene where they meet this kid for the first time. It comes back into play later. And this whole notion of sort of what's real life, what's something out of a movie, I think that all just comes back to this notion of how we define ourselves. We define ourselves and we define our happiness based on how we see it in other people and what we think it might be. And even the little touches he has where there's like a reveal that is totally ripped off from something like Usual Suspects to some degree. And his expectation, the Josh character at the end of the film, that he's going to confront someone almost like Michael Clayton and be perceived as the hero of the film. He's basically a character within this own mini movie. And he always thinks he's going to play out a certain way. And what Baumbach is always showing us is, it never does play out that way. Real life isn't anything like the way we perceive it to be. Yeah. And they're always trying to find that balance and define themselves. There are characters in flux here, for sure. But I, the bewilderment that this isn't a dry comedy about being bewildered and not having it figured out. Because the movie also wants you to think, to a degree, it has it figured out. There are too many speeches, especially as we get to the end, for this movie to not I feel, feel like feel it does way. have things figured out. Dombach's exploring here. It, it he's ends, exploring. No, it, he's exploring and, and the movie is exploring and thinks it's found more than it has. Mm. And there's a difference there between a movie that's just about being bewildered and a movie that feels like it has those answers and really it's still sort of bewildered around the edges. <laughs> I didn't feel that way at all. And I love Adam Driver's performance, actually. I've seen him in a okay. few other things. I saw him in Girls, but I, I really enjoyed this performance. I think it's really sharp. I think it perfectly encapsulates someone who probably drives you crazy when you first meet him. Who likes a hipster character? I mean, they're derided all through our culture, even as they sort of overwhelm our culture. And yet, like Ben Stiller's character and Naomi Watts, the more you're around him, the more you're exposed to him, you find yourself getting caught up in it. You find yourself finding that mm. charisma, finding that sort of energy that you can't help it, but want to be sucked into his vortex, just like the Ben Stiller character. That's what I experience here. Phony, and even, phony no, on too many levels. No, no, phony in complex ways no. where, where he's <laughs> winking but not winking. There's, there's something really smart about this performance, even down to like the moment where it's in the trailer, where they're talking to each other, they're sitting on opposite couches, and they're trying to remember the name of something, and Ben Stiller wants to look it up on his iPhone like we all would. This and is a great like, line. It is. And it cuts to this close-up of Driver, and he says, let's just not know. And there's this smile on his face. And it's so easy to read it as smugly self-satisfied where you want to punch him, and at the same time, you can't help but love the fact and appreciate the fact that, well, at least I bought it, that he really is taking pleasure 
in the not knowing. And the fact he's able to walk that line and in a way is more comfortable with himself. He's more knowingly walking different lines than the Josh character is. Ben Stiller is is just really more flailing in his life. But the Adam Driver character is someone who is more comfortable in his own shoes. And that comes through every moment he's on screen. He's supposed to get more comfortable, though. By the end, you're supposed to get a sense of what this guy is after or what he's about. And that's the part, that's the second level that I never quite bought. Mm, I knew I, I wasn't like I knew I wasn't supposed to buy him at the beginning for some reason. I didn't know why, but I knew I wasn't. So I'm okay with that. But it was that that second part that that I needed. You didn't even appreciate in terms of what this movie is about universally, the whole way the comedy is derived also from the sense of just not always knowing how you're supposed to respond to something in culture today when something is truly ironic versus something that's sincere and this idea that if we're all ironic all the time then is anything ever sincere how do you differentiate sometimes the joke from the personal jab or the serious comment this movie wants us to think about that i think in every scene but and how, I do. how does I'm it sorry, want us I to do. think about what is it it's it's throwing those things up it's throwing them up on the screen but it's not doing a whole lot with them we can't expect them to have the answers josh I don't want the answers. I just want them to do a little bit of their own exploring as well. All right. That's While We're Young. It is out currently in Chicago and limited release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. All right. It's time to crown a champion, Adam. When we come back, we'll reveal whether Jessica Chastain or Michael Fassbender is the winner of Film Spotting Madness. Plus, our friend Steve Procopi from Ain't It Cool News stops by to preview the Chicago Critics Film Festival. Stay with us. Well, I better get myself up every morning Brings another song with a melody to develop All in before the light is gone I hear on the bustling sidewalk Better keep on with my keeping on If I'm gonna bust this padlock Open before the light is gone Streetcar rolling Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode of Film Spotting is brought to you by Shutterstock.com. At Shutterstock.com, you'll find the perfect video for your next creative project, whether that be your website, an advertisement, a multimedia presentation, or any other type of film project. You can choose from over 2.6 million high-quality stock video clips, 2D animations, and 3D motion graphics. Josh, I was thinking about while we're young and Noah Baumbach and shooting in New York. Let's say you're a young filmmaker or you're doing some kind of project that involves New York City, but maybe you don't live there. Maybe you need to fake it a little bit. You need it to look like you're shooting in the greatest city in the world. You go to Shutterstock.com, you go to footage, you type in New York City. How many footage clips do you think you get back? 658,412. <laughs> no, not quite that many. But still a staggering, at least it was before I asked you, 31,572. Hey, I was close. I bet if I did image 
results, it would be 600,000. Sure. But if you I'm need sure. the footage, 31,572. Shutterstock ensures you get quality and selection from its video clip libraries. Many of their contributors are professional filmmakers. They review each one of them for content and quality, and they add 25,000 new clips each week, every time you visit, you'll find something new. Shutterstock also has flexible pricing. You can choose between individual clips or video packs for the best deal. Shutterstock has sophisticated tools, too, so you can search and drill down by category, clip, resolution, contributor name, and more. As you find the video assets you're looking for, just save them to a clip box. Then you can access your selections anytime and share them with others. You can try Shutterstock today by signing up for a free account. No credit card is needed. Just start an account, begin browsing Shutterstock to help imagine what your next project could be like, and then save video selections that you find to your clip box. Once you decide to purchase, use offer code FILM415, and new accounts will receive 20% off only footage clips. That's Shutterstock.com, and for 20% off any video clips with a new account, use offer code FILM415. We thank Shutterstock for their support. Well, I try to keep myself from feeling like I don't belong. Let's see what this life's so well concealing before the light is gone. I'm all in before the light is gone. When I went to go see Raiders of the Lost Ark, it, it, it really just kind of split my brain in half, and I wanted nothing more than to play Indiana Jones. Chris told me, Mom, I want to make a movie, and there's this kid at school that is a filmmaker, and that was Eric. Wanted nothing more than to play Indiana Jones. I can relate to that. I think you can, too. Well, it was my number one movie costume I would wear, so for sure. There you go. Welcome back to Film Spotting with Adam and Josh. A bit of the trailer there from one of the movies that will play the upcoming Chicago Critics Film Festival, a documentary called Raiders, the story of the greatest fan film ever made. More on that movie and the rest of the Chicago Critics Fest lineup in just a minute. Later on in the segment, you will finally hear your Film Spotting Madness champion. First, though, I want to get a correction and an apology out of the way in our last show. We were talking about our massacre theater film, which was Dirty Dancing, and wondering about the director, Emil Ardolino, a name that wasn't too familiar to either of us, and so I believe I surmised that he might have retired. Then we got this note from Billy Ray Bruton in L.A. Just felt like adding some additional context to Emil Ardolino. In addition to his film career, he directed the original mounting of the musical O Calcutta, and he won the 1983 Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. He sadly passed away from AIDS in 1993 at the age of 50 and is still highly regarded in the gay community for all the great work he did. So obviously I probably should have scrolled up from his IMDb page to the bio yeah. and read a little further. So thank you, Billy Ray, for filling that in for us. Yeah, it's funny because when I heard the show for the first time, hadn't looked up anything, and I heard you say he retired in 1993, and I thought to myself, I really hope he did retire and not die in 1993, and we're going to end up feeling really bad about sort of scoffing at his career. And of course, the show goes up. I didn't bother to take the time to look up his full bio. The show goes up, Billy Ray writes in, was very nice and did not make us feel too bad about the fact that we downplayed the achievements of Emil Ardolino. Sounds like he had a pretty prolific career. Yeah, you were very gracious, Billy Ray. Thank you. We also wanted to note about our upcoming marathons. I think we failed to do this, Josh. Maybe throughout the Satyajit Ray Marathon, we touched on a couple times what the next marathon would be, but we closed that out. We shared our awards, wrapped that whole thing up, but didn't really ever pass along the plan for the next marathon. Some people have asked on Twitter, and we are going to have a little bit of space between this marathon and the next one. Probably won't start the next one until 
June is what we're looking at right now. And we are planning to go with Elaine May as we had planned for last year, along yep. with Satyajit Ray. We're going to get to her films, and there's only four of them that she directed. If you don't know her, she is probably most prominently known as the former comedy partner of Mike Nichols, Nichols and May. She directed Ishtar, one of the films that will be discussed. Which I've never seen. Yeah, so. I haven't either. I haven't seen any of them, and it's one of those movies that was, of course, considered a bomb and has long been derided and only recently has become really embraced by a lot of cinephiles, and that was really the impetus for this marathon. So we will get to Elaine May, but that will not be until June. No Elaine May movie screening at this year's Chicago Critics Film Festival, the third annual Chicago Critics Film Festival. And to help us discuss this festival and go over the lineup a little bit, we bring in Steve Procopi, our friend, a.k.a. Capone from Ain't It Cool News. Steve, how are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here as always. As I said, the third annual festival runs May 1st, through the 7th at the Magical Majestic Music Box Theater. You were on last year about this time yes. to promote the festival as well, but I don't remember that conversation. So <laughs> enlighten me. Go back to the very beginning of this, the first one a couple of years ago. Yes. What was the impetus for this? Where did this idea come from? It really just came down to uh, uh, several critics in the Chicago Film Critics Association who were going to a lot of festivals, the, usually just the big ones, Toronto, Sundance, South by Southwest, maybe even Cannes, uh, and, and a few others in between, and just saying, wow, we, we're writing about these films. And, and you know, everyone is. Uh, film critics all over the world are writing about these films, but audiences aren't going to get a chance to see a lot of them, sometimes for over a year, if if at all because some of these films don't have distributors. And we just said, well, let's, can we do sort of a greatest hits package of not just festival f films, but just films we like in general that have not come out yet, that may not have a Chicago release. And we just said, let's, let's see if we can collect some of these and do, a well, originally it was a weekend. And then last year we switched to a full week. Again, it's a full week at the mm -hmm. Music Box uh, in May. And yeah, we just, we're just excited to that, that to, to, to a lot of us, that's our, mission. It's not to tell someone necessarily. I mean, it is part of our job is to tell someone whether we like a movie or not. But really, the most fun I get in this job is turning someone on to something that they may have never heard mm -hmm. of or get showing it to them either through a screening that I do or, or somehow through a review, just sort of letting them know this is out there and you might not be aware of this and sharing the experience. Exactly. Yeah. Sharing the experience lovers, in yeah. a more timely fashion than we're used to sharing it. Sure. So we've been collecting titles since basically since Toronto last year and then Sundance South by Southwest and then just random places. And now people are actually coming to us and saying, can you look at this film and see what you think? And as long as a couple of us agree that it's worth showing we will we will try to get the film if we if we like it a lot so well you do have a great lineup and some really interesting guests lined up to talk about these films what's maybe the one film and maybe even the one guest you point to that you are most excited to share with everybody oh there's two two different ones the the end of the tour which is james pontsalt's new film the gentleman who brought us the spectacular now uh a couple of years ago and he he was a guest at our festival two years ago his new film, The End of the Tour, is about the journalist David Lipsky, who's played by Jesse Eisenberg, who spends a few days at the end of David Foster Wallace's, who was played by uh, Jason Siegel, his book tour. And they just spend some time together. And it's not just an interesting acting exercise, especially for Siegel, who really just dives headfirst into this performance, but... I loved watching Eisenberg play a, a journalist and coaxing 
coaxing answers and responses out of him and not just throwing questions at him, but turning a conversation into an interview. And it's Hmm. something that as someone who does something like that regularly, it was fascinating to because clearly it's it's not just him following a script. There's a charm to it. There's a seduction to it. And it's really just two guys talking in various locations on this tour. But it really pulls you in and it doesn't try to do any kind of foreshadowing to Wallace's life about why he may have killed himself a few years later. It's not trying to do that. It's just this little slice of life that uh, that Lipsky wrote a book about later. It was supposed to be an article, but then he turned it into a book. And it's wonderful. And James Ponsalt will be there at the screening to answer questions afterwards. So I'm a guy who likes an excuse. When a movie gives me an excuse to catch up with a book, Adam doesn't like to read the books before seeing an <laughs> adaptation. Like to read. Well, there's two books, but he doesn't yeah, like to read at all. <laughs> really? So, And I know this isn't an adaptation yeah. of it, but I have taken this as a challenge to actually read Infinite Jest. Yeah. Do you think, I'm 200 pages in, can I get the other 800 done in a few weeks? <laughs> I am not keeping you busy enough if you have time to read Infinite Jest. Well, I don't think I, don't think I do. I'm a little worried, but... Uh, I, you might find more, you might find more enlightening reading Lipsky's book. I mean, I don't think it's as long and... That'll uh, help. That'll might, help. But, and, and you're right, it's not a, a straight adaptation. Right. Uh, but, he, but he's all behind the film. He was there at the screening when I saw it at Sundance. Uh, yeah, he, he is fully on board with this, and it's just an amazing thing when you get to sit and watch two people converse and and banter. And it's not all friendly. There's some antagonistic. But Wallace is an odd bird, and you know I have no doubt that's what he was really like. He didn't know how he felt about getting famous. He knew that he could get women <laughs> from being famous. But at the same time, he he hated the idea of losing his privacy. So he he was a torn individual when it came to this. And that's all right there in the film. You asked about guests. The mm-hmm. one guest I'm particularly excited for people to meet is the subject of Bobcat Goldthwaite's documentary, Call Me Lucky. The gentleman's name is Barry Crimmins. He's a stand-up comic from Boston who was a lot of people have never heard of. But he was truly instrumental in sort of bringing the Boston comedy scene to the forefront in the 80s when stand-up comics were just bombarding us uh, on different talk shows and and tours. And if that's all the film had been about, we probably wouldn't have booked it. We just had Bobcat's last movie, Willow Creek, at the the festival last year, and he was gracious enough to come in. And we really just went to the screening at Sundance to to support the film and just to see because we like his movies and we went to see it. And the the film takes a turn about halfway and gets a little, his, his life took a turn about halfway in and gets very dark and also very confused. And but at the same time, it turns into something very inspirational and things are revealed about his childhood and th- and it just goes places you would never anticipate a film about a comedian going. And we just looked at each other afterwards and like, we have to have this movie in our <laughs> festival. And so both Bobcat Goldthwaite and Barry will be there at the screening. And I think there's going to be maybe one of the most emotional Q and A's we've ever had Hmm. after this one, because there certainly was at Sundance and it was the only screening I went to where there was minutes long standing ovation afterwards. And uh, it's, if you've never heard of him, doesn't matter. 
you will know everything you need to know about this guy and probably some things you don't want to know. But it's great. Call Me Lucky is one that I missed at Sundance that I wanted to get to. So I'm glad it'll be coming around mm-hmm. as part of the festival. Another one that I missed, but I see you guys have too, is Slow West oh, yes. with uh, Michael <laughs> Fassbender. Did you see that at Sundance? Yes. Or will this, okay. No, that was that's where we caught it. Yeah, it's, it is a Western. We, it's actually a day of Westerns or pseudo-Westerns. We also have on that day a film called The Keeping Room with Britt Marling, which isn't technically a Western because it takes place in the South right after the Civil War, but it has that sort of pioneer <laughs> feel in their log cabins. And there's, yeah, I mean, there's, but Slow West, uh, you know, Michael Fassbender as an outlaw, basically. He's a, he's a bodyguard slash killer for hire. I know one of your favorite, other favorite actors, Ben Mendelsohn, is in it as one of the craziest villains he's ever played. And he's played <laughs> several. Played sounds about many. right. <laughs> um, no, but this is, I mean, he's just, I mean, Top he's- Top five he's, crazy Ben Mendelsohn killers? Yeah. yeah. He, Are we ready to do he's that? He's a bounty hunter looking for this family. I don't want to say too much about it, because, uh, but it is it is not like any Western I think you've seen, at least not in quite some time. So, but well worth it. Uh, Fassbender's incredible. And uh, and Mendelsohn's just nuts. Well, the last one I want to ask you about here, because we could spend really 15 or 20 or 30 more minutes at least going through the lineup and talking about the movies we can't wait to see or see again in your case. But Raiders, the story of the greatest fan film ever made. This goes back to didn't the movie come out a few years ago where we finally got to see on some theater screens the movie that this documentary is about, that these young kids put together remaking shot for shot Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is the movie about that. They did that when they were before they were even teenagers back in 1982 when the film was still new. So what's funny is that I was actually at a big part of the documentaries about this. The first time basically it was shown before an audience at an event called But Numathon in That's Austin right. that my boss puts on every year. And one of the first ones he did, this played during a sort of hour long breakfast break. It was about seven in the morning. And those of us, and it just started playing and there was no introduction and we had no idea what we were watching. But those of us who were in the room We'll never forget that day because once you start realizing that what you're watching, you start to anticipate what's coming next. And, sure. Oh, my gosh. How are these kids who are just making this <laughs> with this video camera and no money? How are they going to do that shot? How are they going to do that shot? The one shot they don't get is the big fight with the plane spinning around mm-hmm. and there's explosions. And, and this movie, in addition to going through the history of the adaptation that they did, catches us up with them these they're basically two two main kids and then a couple uh, a couple other actors and crew members they get money through i believe it's kickstarter to film that scene and they have several days to do it and there's a crunch for time and nothing is working right and it's just as stressful on them as when they were children uh getting this done and it's incredible because it really is just about how do you pay tribute to the fan to the films that you loved as a child or loved, you know, that were the most influential in your life. As for the actual adaptation, it's never actually played in a theater for money because it's always it's always played just as as a benefit thing. No one is allowed to make money off of it because it's an illegal remake. <laughs> They're not they didn't pay them for the rights to although Spielberg has seen it and loves it and has met with these kids that are now fully grown adults. You can't play this thing for money. It has it has played certainly before I've seen it. I saw it here uh, at a benefit screening, uh, I believe, for the Chicago Film Festival. But it's remarkable. And it's remarkable that this was made originally. And it's remarkable that they all somehow got back together and finished it. And then, of course, the last thing you see is whether or not they actually completed the segment that they were there hmm. to uh, 
to shoot. Yeah. So it's a great documentary. <laughs> Among the other luminaries coming, Chicago filmmaker Joe Swanberg. He's premiering his latest film, Digging for Fire. That's the opening night movie. And Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, the big winner at Sundance, is the closing night film and all this stuff in between, including Raiders and Slow West. We're going to give away some passes to local Chicago listeners who want to go see Slow West, starring Ben Mendelsohn and the guy whose name I can't say because <laughs> Film Spotting Madness is coming up later in this segment here, and I'm sure I'm going to hit my quota for According the show. to Film Spotting Madness rules, if... Fastbender loses, <laughs> you guys are out of luck because he'll just disappear from the print. That's true. He's no longer allowed to act. That's right. You can't act anymore. So, so you better fate, put in a vote for him. Steve. The fate of I'm pretty sure that the, fest. the we've got grandfathered in the performance is grandfathered <laughs> into the film before the I, tournament. Good point. I think we're safe. I think well, it's captured. Yeah, we'll certainly link to all the information about the festival in our show notes. Again, May 1st through the 7th at the Music Box Theater, the third annual Chicago Critics Film Festival. What is the website where everybody can find all the information? Steve? It is Chicago Critics filmfestival.com Wonderful. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Steve. We'll talk to you soon. Hello. I'm David. What can you do, David? I can do almost anything that could possibly be asked of me. I can carry out directives that my human counterparts might find distressing or unethical. Was Film Spotting Madness fixed? Only if you think it was unfair to pit 32 human actors against an android. Or I don't know if he's an android, but let's just face it, Michael Fassbender is not exactly human. There he is as David from Prometheus, though not really a clip from the film, but from an early promo video for the film. Still seemed appropriate as we transition into the results of the championship bout in Film Spotting Madness, our month-long diversion, distraction. It was fun anyway. It was, it was both of those things. <laughs> yes, it was. Is now complete. We had 32 beloved film spotting actors and actresses, but only one could continue making movies. At the end, we were going to crown which actor or actress has that honor of being the only actor for all of cinema. That's how much we appreciate their work, or at least that's the ridiculous criterion we imposed on film spotting madness. And it did come down to Michael Fassbender versus Jessica Chastain. Some recent films from Jessica Chastain for people out there who maybe aren't all that familiar with her work. Josh, what would you look to? Well, I would mention your beloved Interstellar, She's which very is good her most it. recent, and mm-hmm. I don't think that... Also a most violent year. ...really is a great showcase for her. Did not see a most violent year. Zero Dark Thirty yeah. was a revelatory performance. She's doing some very different work there than she did in something like Take Shelter, which we both love. Yes. Michael Fassbender, probably more recently known for things like the X-Men movies playing Magneto, but also recently Shame, Oscar-nominated for Best Supporting Actor for 12 Years a Slave. You can go back to movies like Hunger as well as Fish Tank, a little mixture of the art house and the mainstream with Fassbender, as you also get with Jessica Chastain. And Josh, how did it come out? It was close. It was. But every movie from now on will only star Michael Fassbender. (laughs) And I'm okay with that, surprisingly. (laughs) He took it with 52% to Jessica Chastain's 48. I think that's how he also beat Joaquin Phoenix in the final four, or maybe 51 to 49, but that was only 30 votes. This one, fewer than 60. So if you were really pulling for Chastain and somehow didn't get your vote in, well, I guess too bad. You cost her. I went with Fassbender. You did? In the end, I did. These two... 
I, I had to go with Fassbender. I would I did vote against him in the Joaquin Phoenix matchup. Mm-hmm. So it's not that I'm all in for Fassbender like yourself, but I don't know. Maybe this feeds the conspiracy theories that we both <laughs> voted for him and he did win. <laughs> Sam voted for him as well. Oh, Actually, no. I don't know if he did oh, because no. <laughs> he's neither a fan of Fassbender nor Chastain. Like at all? No, or not really. Just not no. a huge fan. No, he doesn't really like Chastain that much as an actress, and he really hasn't seen much of Fassbender's work. Wow. Yeah. So All right. maybe it was a little bit of a conspiracy. Sam really was just abstaining the whole time from the championship round. We get to some listener feedback here. Richard Childs in Ealing, London says, I'm voting for Chastain simply to prevent a landslide victory for the Fass. If I'd been honest, Fass would get my bum on a seat before Chastain. I can't fault him in anything, but Adam has pulled a Fass one. More <laughs> more puns here, really. And I need to oh, encourage no. balance. Marcel Kieran from... Taranga, New Zealand, said my vote for Chastain was sealed as soon as people started calling Michael Fassbender the Fass. We didn't start that. No. It was our listeners. It was. But it's kind but of But I like that logic. <laughs> Me too. Andy from Chicago says, I picked Chastain because feminism. Okay, that and Zero Dark Thirty. Oh, they're kind of related. Rob from Bourbon, Illinois. Strike one, Tree of Life. Strike two, being upstaged by younger version in Interstellar. Strike three, taking down Bill Murray. Fassbender all the way. So not really a vote so much for Fassbender as against Chastain. Chastain. And look, I'm and against... Murray. That's true. I'm against a couple of those. Actually, all of them. Strike one, Tree of Life. That's well, a strike I, against her? Yeah, that's not even worth Rob, acknowledging. No, really. Ryan from New Jersey. Picking between Fassbender and Chastain to me is like picking between pancakes and waffles. Now mm. we're speaking my language. <laughs> I'll pick one because I have to, but I'd honestly be more than happy with either. Fassbender, like the waffle, is bulkier, a little showier, does his job super effectively, but you know what you're getting, and that's fine. Chastain, like the pancake, is a little softer, not as showy, but can be more unpredictable. Who knows if you're going to bite in and get a regular pancake, or if you'll get chocolate chips, blueberries, bananas, heck, maybe even strawberries. There are a lot more possibilities, and the uncertainty is what excites me, which is why I'm going to have to go with pancakes this time. Congrats to Chastain on a wonderful run either way. Wow, I'm a little baffled by that and also hungry. Ben from Manchester, UK. I don't know what this says about my voting process or how it relates to the wider film spotting consensus, but every single round I voted for Fassbender, and I think I've never voted for Chastain. I was sorely heartbroken when Bardem, Lawrence, Hardy, and Murray were all knocked out, and yet every single round I've teetered on the edge of voting in the opposite direction. I nearly voted for Gleason, Cotillard, Blanchett, and Phoenix over Fassbender. And even though I just described myself as heartbroken, I'd qualify this as a delighted kind of heartbroken. Perhaps this just attests to the sheer caliber of actors in these polls, that clear, instinctive decisions have been near impossible. Like a series of perverse boxing prize fights, I will forever remember how I decided between my most cherished performers. Fassbender versus Gleason, Hardy versus Mendelssohn, Lawrence versus Chastain, Phoenix versus McConaughey. You found the place where the Thrilla in Manila meets Sophie's Choice. All of which is to say what a fantastic job you've done with these polls and how wholeheartedly I look forward to film spotting director's madness, War of the Andersons. It really probably will be. I mean, in terms of the top top few seeds, you know, whether it's a year from now or it was tomorrow, Paul Thomas Anderson and Wes Anderson will be featured prominently in film spotting madness director's version. And we will each have a dog in that fight. We will. I have one more here I wanted to share, Josh. This comes to us via our Facebook page. Ramona Berry wrote in with this. I pose this question to you. Could Fassbender pull off nice, warm, sympathetic, kind? No, I don't think so. He's great at what he does. Super weird, sinister, psycho, sad, scary, and fending off large objects with the power of his palms. But for range and subtlety, it's Chastain for the win. 
That is a good point. I'm trying to recall every I'll fast better performance. Does I'll give he you have one. one? How about? I'm sure he's capable of it. Yes, he's wearing a paper mache head and you don't see his face, but he is most of those things, including kind and warm, but also a little weird, in Frank. I would agree. I would agree. How can you I say? Feel, okay, good. I'm guessing Ramona hasn't seen it. I would also go back to a movie like Fish Tank, Andrea Arnold's film, where guess what? He comes off a little creepy in that one too, but not before he comes off as warm and nice, maybe a little bit too warm and nice with the main character in that movie, but he's pretty much just a normal dude in that film. And yeah, he can pull that off too. So I disagree, I think, about the terms there, but I get it. I think in terms of the perception of Michael Fassbender, maybe Jessica Chastain seems to have a little bit more range. Well, we should thank once more now that we're at the end, Michael Merrigan, the listener who came up with this whole scheme. And what are you going to do with your time now? I don't know. Adam, think of all the work you're going to well, be able to accomplish when I have you a don't year. have to dither over this. No, oh, this is no. great. I have a year to think about the right directors. Into the directors. Instead of just oh, no. a few weeks to think about the actors' version. That's fine. It's going to be even better. Start copying me on the emails when you guys get to version 64. <laughs> we well, when it's done, that's when we'll finally the call final you bracket. In. Yeah. Okay. But Michael Merrigan, you mentioned Dover, New Hampshire, the listener who came up with the initial concept for this. He actually just left us a voicemail, Josh, that I was able to listen to before coming in to sit down with you. And he approves. Very happy to see how we've run with his concept and had a blast throughout and seems to be okay with how it ended up, though he's actually calling a fix. Going back to round two, he's still beside himself that Michael Shannon got beat. Yeah, you got to let those things go. You do. You have no choice. I'm I'm finally gotten over Jennifer Lawrence now winning this. Right. Thing, so she lost to Chastain. One final thing I wanted to say, going back to last week's feedback, where some listeners really eloquently called me out and blamed me for Fassbender doing so well in this that maybe I was skewing the votes. Not that I was actually cheating, but that I was somehow compelling listeners to follow my lead because I've professed so much love for Fastbender over the years. The one thing that makes me feel good about how this all ended up, Josh, is who Fastbender beat on his way to the crown. If you look at the fact that he beat Brendan Gleeson, maybe underappreciated, you didn't expect him to beat Fastbender, but a great, great talent. But then after that, he beat Marion Cotillard, he beat Kate Blanchett, and Joaquin Phoenix. So it's not an accident. He didn't just yeah, sort of last two go through the 16 seeds on his wins. way to the championship. He somehow pulled it out and I think that speaks overall to his talent, or at least how film spotting listeners, or a good chunk of film spotting listeners, regard his talent. Let's get then to a new poll question. We're back to the boring yeah, stuff. Sam's no more go film back spotting to work madness now. He's got to come up with these good new polls. <laughs> it's true. I think he did okay here. As we're looking ahead a couple of weeks, we are planning to review. Not sure if it'll be opening weekend or the weekend after, but we are planning to discuss Avengers Two, The Age of Ultron. I'm pumped. You sound I'm so, like so it. pumped. <laughs> I am more excited to share our I hear there's five. a lot of talk about objective truth among documentarians <sighs> Man, I hope so. in that, too. I really hope so. I think so. Ultron is a documentarian. That would help. That would help a lot. I am more excited to share my top five most anticipated summer movies. We'll also do that on that episode. Is Ultron even a character? I don't know. Or is it like a planet <laughs> even I know that. or something? Even it is I a character. That. Okay, yeah. good. <laughs> the question is, thinking about summer movies, which summer 2015 nostalgia reboot are you most looking forward to? The options are Jurassic World, which is directed by Safety Not Guaranteed's Colin Trevorrow. It stars Chris Pratt, Bryce Dallas Howard, Adam's beloved Jake Johnson, Indeed. and some dinosaurs. 
Then we also have Mad Max Fury Road. George Miller is coming back to direct this. Has Tom Hardy and Charlize Theron. A Poltergeist reboot. I didn't even know about yeah, this. Yeah, I saw the preview for so. it before uh, it follows. You look slightly more excited. <sighs> I'm sorry. Than about so Avengers. Looks even so with bad. Sam Rockwell and even Rosemary with, DeWitt. Unfortunately, yes. Wow. Terminator Genesis. That's G E N I S Y S. Of course, Genesis. It is. Yeah, you have to explain that every time you mention this film. Arnold is back for this one. And Vacation, this is another one that snuck up on me. Chevy Chase is back, Beverly D'Angelo, but you also have Ed Helms and Leslie Mann playing the grown-up Rusty and Audrey. It's directed by John Francis Daly. He played Sam Weir in Freaks and He's all grown up, and he's directing Chevy Chase and Ed Helms and company in a Vacation reboot. So of those five options, Josh, what do you got? Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah, I'm with you too. Really? Do you have the most but I don't have a lot of for that original? For oh, okay. No, in terms of the originals, well, that's harder because I do really love the original Poltergeist. Yeah, and me too. the original Terminator, these are kind of different because they're kind of remaking these films, whereas something like Terminator Genesis is just yet another installment. Sequel or something. Yeah, yeah, and Vacation, whatever you want to call that with the same characters. I don't know what that is. I don't either, but... I probably have the most affection for something like Poltergeist, not where I'm going to go. As I said, I have seen the preview, and it was dispiriting, no pun intended, despite the fact that I love those two actors so much. I just think Tom Hardy, another guy who did pretty well in mm-hmm. Film Spotting Madness, but I think got beat by Chastain on her way to the championship round. The fact that he's in it, that's who I want to see on screen. Intentionally not included in the reboots because nobody's nostalgic for Jessica Alba's Sue Storm. <laughs> We're not going to believe you if you claim to be. Fantastic Four, Miles Teller, Kate Mara, Michael B. Jordan, and Jamie Bell on that. An intriguing cast. It is. For sure. Josh Trank. I did not see Chronicle, but a lot of people liked Chronicle. So potentially interesting director, good cast, and yet I'm still so scarred by having seen all of the first Fantastic Four movie and most of the second one on a flight and never wanting to see the whole thing in one sitting that I don't know that I can get pumped up for it. I'm sorry you were scarred. I mean, they're they're mainly forgettable. I think if anything's good about this, it will finally force me to catch up with Chronicle because I haven't seen that either. All right, up next, two men right around 40 share their favorite midlife crisis movies. You know what this means, Adam? We're going streaking. Stay with us. Well, I believe this time we blew this all seem to matter where we are. get to our thank yous and donations here in a moment. First, a note about our featured artist, Canada's Ron Sexsmith from his new album, Carousel One. Ron Sexsmith, who, if you live here in Chicago, you just missed him. He played the Old Town School of Music last week. But, Josh, back when I had just moved to Chicago, I think in the late 90s, I didn't miss Ron Sexsmith because I saw him open for 
Elvis Costello. Nice. Yeah, it was a very good show. The first time I had heard of him, and we have been fans of his music for a few years here on the show. We were not planning to play him this week. We had someone already lined up, and then our wonderful co-producer and brilliantly insightful music aficionado Sam Van Hallgren realized that he had two perfect songs to play from Ron Sexsmith that were all about basically midlife crises. Perfect. We like to have those tie-ins from time to time, which is why we bumped our artists last week so we could feature the music of <laughs> Fast and the I Furious. It was perfect, really probably the best part of the show. For our Canadian listeners, he's all over Ontario in late April and May before heading to Europe. More information at ronsexsmith.com. Let's get to our donors, Josh, and a few of their wonderful comments. Brian C. in Chicago donated, as did J.D. Duran in Lexington, Kentucky. He's from the In Session Film Podcast. As a fellow podcaster and one on a limited budget, it's difficult to find donation money sometimes. However, that Furious 7 episode was so much fun and well-articulated that I immediately re-listened to the show in its entirety, and it compelled me to donate. Film spotting has been largely influential on me, and it's a show I highly anticipate every week. The way you view art with such conviction is contagious, and it completely resonates with me. I wish I could give more, but with an already limited budget and a baby on the way, I can't wait. I gave what I could. At any rate, you guys are wonderful, and each week the provocative conversation is refreshing and motivating me even further. Well, J.D., you know you don't have to donate more. Just think about if it's a boy. Adam's a wonderful name. (laughs) Or you could just donate, J.D., really. (laughs) Maybe. Don't massage his ego yeah, anymore. Know, maybe not quite so intense. In Session Film, pretty good podcast itself. I've guessed it on there. So There you go. And they are trying to get me on, and I've just been playing hard to you're get. You're going to say, not until you name your child after me. Leverage. Then maybe I'll come on. Leverage. I like it, Josh. Classy. Thank you, JD, for your kind notes, and please do keep up the good work. Larissa in Austin, Texas, wrote in, I've been listening since the beginning when you were Cinecast. Thanks to you, I feel like a more informed film watcher. I never would have known about directors like Buñuel or Kozlowski were it not for you, but the thing that got me to donate was your mention of the musicals marathon in the first year of the show. That was a fun one to listen to. Thank you for all these great years. I love that because we got mostly positive comments, almost unanimous positive comments to the show we devoted to the Fast and the Furious comments along the lines of JD, but we got a few snarky ones as I anticipated, and I don't think we'll get to play it, so I'll mention it here really just because the audio quality wasn't quite good enough and I couldn't make out the name, but it was a listener Mike. Yeah, I think it sounded was like he in Mike. LA? I listened to that too. Mike in LA who I think so. sent us a great pithy voicemail that basically said, you know, I listened to your Fast and Furious episode and immediately unsubscribed. <laughs> and he's like, of course, I then resubscribed, but <laughs> I know that you got my point. That's right. (laughs) We'll take it. Very, very clever. And so we go from the Fast and Furious to Larissa's mention of Buñuel and Kislovsky. We do try to mix it up here on the show. And I don't know if I should put this out here, but I'm trying to convince you. And I haven't even tried to convince our producers and everyone who participates and makes our film spotting live shows possible. But instead of doing one here in Chicago this July, I'm going to push that we actually do a road show and we do it in Austin, Texas. I like it. My only concern is how hot does it get there? I mean, can people live it's in Texas. Austin it's in big. July? It's hot. I've heard it's not pleasant. You know, Great town, I've heard. Pleasant people, But most though. people go other times of the year. You want to go in July. All right, let's do it. I didn't say I was smart. A Silver Club donation comes to us from Stephanie Perkins in Asheville, North Carolina. I've been a monthly subscriber in the past, but it's been at least a year since I've made a donation. Adam, your number one pick in last week's top five 21st century horror movies was exactly the reminder I needed to drop another offering onto your plate. I'm a huge fan of horror films, and like most horror buffs, nothing really scares me anymore. 
David Fincher's Zodiac is the exception. The Lake Berryessa scene ranks as the most frightening sequence that I've ever encountered. It takes a common setup for a teen slasher, a man dressing up in costume and killing a pair of amorous teenagers, but it's real. For the duration of the film, I was hyper-aware that a real man had put on a real costume and attacked a real pair of teenagers. In broad, Texas chainsaw massacre-esque daylight, no less. It took me several weeks to shake this image. At night, when I climbed into bed and closed my eyes, I would see the killer, hooded in black, stepping out from behind that tree. Yikes. Adam's hugging himself <laughs> I am. right now. As a fan of horror, Stephanie says, I love getting into discussions about the genre. Inevitably, I'll be asked which films have actually scared me. I always mention Zodiac, and the response is always a mystified stare. Thank you, Adam, for justifying my terror. And thank you, Josh, for the continual stream of love for Wes Anderson. I feel the same way. Oh, great, Stephanie. <laughs> when I just hear people praise to keep doing that. Steve Zissou, I feel terror. So <laughs> it's perfectly in Low sync blow. there. No, thank you, Stephanie, for that. It seems I got one right for a change in my top five, and hopefully that'll make up for my top five that's to come. You got to bank these, Josh, when you get them right. New $5 a month donors, Bruce, a.k.a. Uncle the Bruce, as was a nickname bestowed upon him previously in Rohnert Park, California. He renewed his subscription and Gustavo in Santana de Parnalba, Brazil. I looked that up. It's in Sao Paulo, which I'm sure is lovely this time of year, probably even hotter than Austin Could be. in July, Josh. And we close with one final gold level donor to film spotting. That's Ethan from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Probably a little more chilly in July. I'm going to go with that. Should we retroactively go back and talk about the weather in all of the cities that have been mentioned in I donations? I think we could just make it a thing moving forward. North Carolina. Mm-hmm. I bet it's lovely right now. <laughs> Asheville. Uh, Lexington. Asheville probably sounds, similar to North yeah. Carolina. Okay, let's, so, stop. let's stop. Okay. Get away car, I love Get away far from We can watch it all disappear with you. Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by BuzzFeed's Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer of Screen Crush, focusing on the world of online movies. More information at filmspottingsvu.com or subscribe to the show on iTunes. Hey there, listeners over at the Film Spotting Mothership. Can you keep a secret? It's Allison Wilmore over at Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. Ever since we decided to review Netflix's new Daredevil series on our latest episode, my co-host Matt Singer and I have been leading double lives. Podcasters by day, podcasters fighting on behalf of justice in the old neighborhood at night. No one knows that it's us, because in our secret lives, our voices are much more gravelly. I'm not seeking penance for what I've done. I'm asking for forgiveness for what I'm about to do. Inspired by Daredevil's powers, he's blind, but his other senses are heightened. We're going to look at how blind characters are depicted in some other movies, all of which you can rent or stream at home right now. Find us in iTunes or check us out at filmspottingsvu.com. This is Colin Trevorrow, the director of Safety Not Guaranteed, and you're listening to Film Spotting. Do you know what the secret of life is? No, what? This. Your finger? One thing. Just one thing. You stick to that and everything else don't mean shit. That's great, but what's the one thing? That's what you got to figure out. You know I've got some midlife anxiety, Josh, when City Slickers is totally speaking to me. 
<laughs> What's funny is it was speaking to you back when you were 14 as That's well, true. right? It's true. Welcome back to Film Spotting with Josh. I'm Adam. Jack Palance and Billy Crystal there in 1991. City Slickers setting up this week's top five. We're sharing, just like we were in therapy, our top five midlife crisis movies. Believe it or not, young people of Film Spotting Nation, we know you're out there. The fifth highest grossing movie of 1991 was a comedy about a guy, Crystal, going through a midlife crisis, and the closest thing to a superhero movie in the top 10 that year was Kevin Costner and that atrocious accent as Robin Hood. That does seem inconceivable in <laughs> today's movie world, doesn't it? It does. I looked through the rest of the list. Terminator 2 did okay. That was the box office champ that year. But even with Terminator 2, I don't know if you can look back on 91 with all that much fondness. Hook, Adam's Family, Sleeping with the Enemy, those were the six through eight movies, Josh, and we did look back on 1991 just real quick here. We found some other good films to highlight when we did yeah, that list. Yeah, you can't go by the so box ago. office no, list. No, Spartan Fink, My Own Private Idaho, The Fisher King, Silence of the Lambs did do very well at the box office and Terminator 2 Judgment Day, as we said. But enough about 1991 and City Slickers, even though I could probably go on too long about how much that movie does seem to speak to me. Midlife crisis movies, Josh, I think one of the toughest things for me, we've had some top fives recently that were really easy to define, like our favorite moments from the Fast and Furious franchise. You pretty much know what you're getting. You know what you're getting into. Yeah, that was fairly clear. Midlife crises, I mean, you do some searching out there. Most people aren't even sure they agree that it's a real thing or how to define it. You see age gaps all over the place. How did you define it? Well, you could talk about the age, right? At what age do you have to be to have one? And when are you too old to have one? What I wanted to do is set some categories aside that are often mixed together. So I didn't consider any midlife crises films that were also handling artistic crises. So something like Fellini's Eight and a Half I set aside or spiritual crises, Bergman's Winter Light. Mm -hmm. And even a lot of times these two are really close together, a movie that explores a marriage crisis that's in line with a midlife crisis. So maybe The Kids Are All Right is a movie I, I briefly thought about, but put it in that marriage category and then set it aside so I could zero in on some that are just about the midlife crisis itself. Well, for once, we did this. Well, usually we do this completely separate from each other, and we didn't talk about it at all, and we're completely in sync okay. on how we approach the top five because I had this notion in my mind of what I thought of midlife crisis was and I needed some support basically and so I did some searching and I found a quote from someone who I up to this point was not familiar with Anthony Venn Brown who wrote a book called A Life of Unlearning A Journey to Find the Truth. He's talking specifically about the struggle of closeted gay people closeted men specifically, but I think he provides with this one quote, the best summation I found that really did match what I was thinking for midlife crisis. He says, midlife dynamically for both straight and gay males is often challenging as we face the reality that many of the dreams we had for our lives might not become a reality and unresolved conflicts come to the surface. Yeah. So thinking about that, of course, our dreams may have revolved around a career or maybe family in terms of a spouse and children, but I didn't want to focus on people in crisis. And there are a lot of them. If you look at this topic, you could come up with a thousand different titles that seem yeah, to I work. started with a huge but, list. Right. I didn't want to think about movies where the characters go through some crisis and they also happen to be middle age. I didn't want to tie it to something like an occupation or a spiritual crisis, which is winter light or a marriage problem like Bergman's scenes from a marriage. Or I'm with you, an artistic crisis like Eight and a Half or for me, I love the Bob Fosse film, all that jazz. I wanted it to be sufficient that they were middle-aged 
and having to confront their mortality and just a general sense of dissatisfaction with their life. That had to be enough. And yes, that does result often in doing something misguided to compensate for that dissatisfaction. So I think we're on the same page. We'll see how much our picks are in line with each other. What's your number five? Number five, I'm going with The Seven Year Itch. This is Billy Wilder's 1955 comedy. It's about a Manhattan businessman named Richard Sherman. He's played by Tom Ewell. It's really about this guy's paralyzing fear that he's going to have a midlife crisis more than that he actually has one. The setting is after Richard's wife and family have left the city for the summer to escape the heat. This is a common practice at this time. And most of the men that Richard knows, they use this as an excuse to have a mini midlife crisis. They run wild for a couple of months while the family is away. Well, Richard denies he's going to do this. His insistent phrase is, not me, not me. And he keeps things under control pretty much until he gets a new upstairs neighbor played by Marilyn Monroe. take you in my arms and kiss you very quickly and very hard. The way that Wilder and Monroe to heighten things in this film, it's entirely possible that Richard has imagined her both as this test for himself and as this fantasy figure so he can have the crisis without really having it. So Seven Year Rich may be the midlife crisis movie that took place entirely in one guy's head, but still works for me. I like that reading, and I think if I really bought into that reading, I might appreciate that movie more. I love it for Monroe, but that's She it. is the best thing in it. She is, and I guess I'll go from a movie I would consider minor Wilder to a movie that most people consider minor David Fincher. It is his film from 1997, The Game, starring Michael Douglas, and I didn't realize our films would overlap here at all, but you talk about being more afraid of having a crisis and that's the crisis well the character michael douglas plays who is this rich investment banker that's his paralyzing fear is that he is headed for a breakdown on the level of as we learn his father had and that is really what's crippling him more than anything and his brother played by sean penn comes along and says you know you don't seem too happy i've got an idea you should be part of this thing called the game where you basically sign a bunch of papers and pay some money and say, I'm willing to just follow wherever this goes. And at some point, if you've seen the movie, you know that he doesn't really know anymore what's real and what isn't. And he can't distinguish who is on his side and who isn't on his side as his life just spins completely out of control. It's funny because in preparing for this list, I found an interview with Fincher where he basically said, yeah, I probably shouldn't have made this movie. We never really did figure out the third act. I hope he's not (laughs) thinking of the ending when he's talking about the third act, because for me, the ending, which I won't spoil here, the ending is really where this whole movie comes together for me. And Josh, I'm not much of a self-help guy or a therapy guy. I don't dabble in those worlds or really know anything about the terminology, but there's something about the ending of the game that just feels so absolutely true to me. There's a catharsis that happens through experience. And it's totally absurd. Everything about it is insane. You can buy it in the movie world. Even for a movie, it's hard to suspend disbelief that it would play out the way it does. But if you do suspend your disbelief, as I did, that sense of emotional catharsis for me was 
a case where I kind of just took a deep breath at the end of it. I felt like I'd been through the whole ordeal that that character had been through. It's actually shaped for me. It's funny because this is a movie that I don't know has come up very often over the years. I'm not saying it's a game changer or that it's one of the top 100 or 200 films ever made, but the ending of the film made me think about that sense of experience and catharsis and how we process our lives and our past in a way that has always stayed with me. Would you put it up fairly high then among Fincher's films? I can't remember because I did rank Fincher's films. And while you're talking about your number four pick for Gone Girl, yeah, I might look at my list and see. It's probably right in the middle. I love a lot of his work. All right. Well, my number four, I did consider putting at this spot La Dolce Vita, also from Fellini. But instead, I went with its recent variation, 2013's The Great Beauty from director Paolo Sorrentino. I was actually reminded of it by listener Carlos Martinez Perez on Facebook. This centers on Jep Gambardella, a 65-year-old, yes, he's 65, high society journalist, who's actually coming down from a decades-long midlife crisis. That's why I put him on this list. He's played by the wonderful Tony Servillo. Long past most men his age, Jep has been living high. He has these cozy assignments from high society magazines. He indulges in casual romances. He goes to these all-night parties. And underlining all of this, the way that he's chosen to live his life in perpetual midlife crisis, is this idea of avoiding seriousness at all costs in favor of this blithe self-promotion. We really get a feel for this when he attends a funeral, and he plays it the same way. He's, He's not going to acknowledge that this is a serious event at all. I think more than anything else, Jep is, uh, it's the carefree nature of youth that he's preserved past its appropriate point. At some point in our lives, we need to maybe not throw that away entirely, but balance it out a little bit. And he's just refused to do that. So The Great Beauty traces his journey out of this extended midlife crisis to experience a life that it's going to allow for things like seriousness and sadness. And um, because of that, it feels a little bit fuller in the end. It's beautiful. It's a luscious film just to look at. My David Fincher rankings, I have the game at six, like I thought, right there in the middle, higher than some other films that people may prefer, but Fight Club, Gone Girl, The Social Network, Seven, and Zodiac. Yeah. Those are, those are pretty good. That's one of those cases. Yeah. How do you bump it up? My number four is the polar opposite of The Great Beauty. I don't think anyone would ever describe it as luscious. It doesn't have the epic scope of something like The Great Beauty, but one of the things I love about it is just how confined and intimate it really feels. And it was one of my top 10 films of 2013, Nicole Holofcener's Enough Said, starring Julie nice. Louis-Dreyfus and James Gandolfini, I think, in his last screen role and he is wonderful in this film but so is julia louis dreyfus one of my favorite female performances certainly of that year as well and this one might be a little bit of a stretch because people who know this film well might think does she really ever undergo kind of a crisis you don't really think of her as someone who's running around in panic mode and that's true but going back to that notion of just feeling generally dissatisfied with your life where you're at and then making maybe one or two really bad decisions that prevent you from maybe finally reaching happiness. That's certainly what we see from her character. She's a masseuse and she is self-employed and she doesn't seem to hate her job. But at the same time, we see that she's not really enjoying all of the interactions she has with her various clients. She's divorced. She's still dealing with some repercussions from that. And she has a daughter who's about to go off to college. So that's a lot to really wrap your head around. And we see the character struggle with that as she embarks on a relationship with the Gandolfini character, she also discovers that Catherine Keener is his ex-wife, and she is one of 
Julie Louis-Dreyfus's clients. So she's hearing all these horrible things about the guy she's dating and kind of falling in love with. And the really bad decision, of course, is not being honest and upfront with him mm-hmm. and letting that stuff kind of poison that relationship. But as we said then, I think we both appreciated not just the performances, but the writing, the chemistry between these characters and seeing this character not really make a huge transformation over the course of this movie, but realizing that she is unhappy and finally having some revelations about how she can move on from where she's at. Yeah, that's. I'm really glad you put that on this list because Enough Said is one of those pictures. I had it on my top 10 too, and since then, you don't hear anything about it. It's just one of these movies that has this really genuine low hum to it, mm-hmm. but in a way maybe makes it somewhat forgettable and uh, it, it speaks to maybe the low hum crisis that exactly. she goes through too but it's it's still very authentic my number three is Thelma and Louise which is many things other than a midlife crisis movie most notably I think you could call it a really provocative narrative of feminist rebellion but I do like how it weaves elements of midlife crisis into that. So it gives this female lens to something that's most often depicted as a male experience. It starts with Thelma, played by Gina Davis, and her older friend Louise, played by Susan Sarandon, as they head out on this road trip. It's a respite, a a sense of escape from their everyday lives, which is the genesis for so many midlife crisis narratives. Now, the real crisis comes when Thelma is nearly raped in a parking lot of a bar. Louise prevents this by pulling out a gun, and then in a burst of anger, she shoots and kills the assailant, so the two of them go on the run. Thelma, I'm going to Mexico. Now, I figure I can make it in two and a half days, but I'm going to have to haul ass. Are you up to this? I mean, I got to know. This isn't a game. I'm in deep and I got to know what you're going to do. I don't know. I don't know, Louise. I mean, uh... I don't know what you're asking. Now, don't you, don't you start flaking out. I mean, God damn it, Thelma. Every time we get in trouble, you just get blank or, or, or pleading sanity or some such shit. Not this time. I mean, this time, things have changed. Everything's changed. It becomes this fugitive movie, but again, with a feminine slant. And I'd argue that their response, maybe particularly Sarandon's here, the Sarandon characters, is a result of their age. You know, Louise has had it with a half-life's worth of objectification and sexism. She's experienced too much at this point to let it go any longer. So it's a midlife crisis that somehow feels like a legitimate catharsis. Mm -hmm. It's a great choice. My number three is The Truman Show from 1998, Peter Weir movie, his Witness recently made a top yeah, a five of, Peter of mine. Weir love lately. And Andrew Nichol wrote this film, of course, starring Jim Carrey. It's a movie I mentioned a couple times, even though it really hasn't made any, perhaps, top five lists of mine. I revisited only after seeing it in the theaters and thinking it was okay. I think there was a part of me, I was not really the critic I was then, Josh, but I was someone who was maybe just a little bit put off by the cuteness of the conceit of the film something about that whole reality very TV high thing. yeah it just I, I thought it was very clever and didn't really get past that and then i watched it again and actually watched it with my kids and really connected with it on a much deeper level of course the crisis here is you have a character who has spent his whole life in front of tv cameras not knowing that this really sheltered environment and of course there starts to be a few little wrinkles in the fabric of his everyday life which always follows this set routine and he is forced to finally question the reality of the world around him why do you want to have a baby with me you can't stand me 
That's not true. <laughs> Why don't you let me fix you some of this new Mococo drink? All natural cocoa beans from the upper slopes of Mount Nicaragua, no artificial sweeteners. What the hell are you talking about? Who are you talking to? I've tasted other cocos. This is the best. What the hell does this have to do with anything? Tell me what's happening! Well, you're having a nervous breakdown. That's what's happening. You're part of this, aren't you? A movie that did not make my list, but I considered and may just come up, I don't know, because it certainly came up a lot on Twitter and Facebook, is It's a Wonderful Life, another midlife crisis movie. Oh, I've we'll always thought of, yeah, I figured. I've always thought of The Truman Show as a kindred spirit to that movie, because how can you not see Truman with his suitcase packed, thinking about what's out there and wanting to go out into the world and not recall George Bailey and the dreams he had that he never quite fully realized the larger themes of the movie, too, on that second reflection really did work for me, where you've got, of course, this whole director as God and star as Adam parallel that's going on. There is that TV satire element that I think is smart, but at the same time, it isn't just condescending about popular entertainment and reality TV. And the forbidden love story with him and Natasha McElhone is, is really sweet and effective for me. And there is one scene in the movie, I singled this out when... I wrote about it a little bit on Letterboxd, where Noah Emmerich plays his best friend and is being confronted by Truman about whether or not he's in on this whole scheme. And he says, I'm not in on it. And if you just read through the layers of subtext that are in that scene, because he's an actor. So is he just being really talented and he's doing whatever he has to do to save the show and his job by pretending to be a friend? Or is he also doing all of that, but at the same terms, confronting how he's betraying his friend? Noah Emmerich's wonderful i think he's doing all of that and the movie like that scene works on a lot of different levels so i do have it's a wonderful life at number two okay there you go i think what you said is it's a boring choice when we saw it come up quite a lot and we were emailing a little bit about this i hope you didn't mean to imply it's a boring movie because it's a wonderful life probably haven't seen it in a decade or more but yeah you should you should revisit it i mean it's a familiar classic and you know it's not one i've talked about much on the show and it was perfect for this list so i went with it at james stewart's george bailey he's in such a midlife crisis here that he's on the verge of suicide and i think this movie does zero in on one of the triggers for midlife crisis Regret over decisions you've made and the life that that has led to. So George here, he regrets this life of sacrifice he's lived for others. He feels that's been a waste judging on where he's come to. So the movie, as we know, is structured around George's guardian angel, Clarence, who shows him what life in Bedford Falls would have been like without George's life. And he shows him that George has had a good life well lived. What else are you? What are you? You a hypnotist? No, of course not. Well, then why am I seeing all these strange things? Don't you understand, George? It's because you were not born. Well, if I wasn't born, who am I? You're nobody. You have no identity. Oh, what do you mean, no identity? My name's George Bailey. There is no George Bailey. You have no papers, no cards, no driver's license, no 4F card, no insurance policy. They're not there either. What? Zuzu's petals. You've been given a great gift, George. A chance to see what the world would be like without you. It's a Wonderful Life. I think it's become one of those feel-good, fuzzy movies that people overlook, maybe, but it does still resonate. It, it just has that comforting thought there. Just because our lives turned out differently than what mm-hmm. we may have intended doesn't mean that they turned out wrong. Yeah, can't argue with that choice. And you're right. It's really one of my great regrets that I've gone through now 
13 holiday seasons with at least one child, and I have never sat down and Done made the tra- my kids the traditional watch viewing. It's a Wonderful Life. You're allowed to watch it outside of December, too, though. Well, that's, that's true. Okay, Except so. when you were a kid, did you ever watch it outside of November or December? No, because it was a TV, you know, it was a TV experience. Exactly. So that's and what's different for us. Like, a, we had it. It came on, like The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. You couldn't help but sit around the TV. Yeah. I feel like now I'm talking about rolling up by the radio with your grape knee high or whatever. But, you know, it was a little bit of a more innocent time and we had fewer options. And now we all have so many options and it doesn't happen. You know, when we did revisit, though, it was right around Christmas. We didn't have to, but it was like, this is when we should watch it. So we will. My number two is another one that might be a little bit of an odd choice as a crisis movie. But of course, that's why it sticks out to me and why I do think it's appropriate for the list. And it's a movie that we have talked about a lot on the show, but only if you were listening recently to our Satchit Ray Marathon. My favorite film, my best picture winner in that marathon was The Big City with one of my all-time favorite performances by an actress, Madhabi Mukherjee. And she's middle-aged. We don't really know how old the character is I suppose, Josh, we were talking about this coming in. Is she middle-aged because she's about 35? A lot of these movies that we considered, if you read the plot descriptions, they're 34 or 35, and they're going through these midlife crises, which It's kind of terrifying. Yeah, it it makes me really (laughs) feel even older than I usually do and kind of forces me down the path of a midlife crisis myself. But she's a mom, and she's a wife, and she's also a sister-in-law, and she's a nurse, and she is all these things to everyone in this house. And what I love so much, I'm certainly not suggesting to anyone that the crisis of this film is a character, in this case, a woman, deciding, I'm going to go to work. I'm going to support my family, as if that's some harebrained scheme that she shouldn't do. But the reality is, in this world where It is such a foreign thing to the culture, so much so that the father-in-law who lives with her won't talk to her anymore because it's such a blow to custom and the way things should be. The fact that she, at one point, doesn't even know she's unhappy. All these characters we've talked about, I think there are are kinks in the armor where at some point you realize that there's something not quite right with their life. If you watch the first 15 or 20 minutes of The Big City, I don't think you ever really get the sense that she's dissatisfied. It's not until she has the epiphany that, oh, wait, I could actually do something else. I could do something more. I don't have to be defined just by the woman I am at home and I could go to work. That does force her to think about her entire life in a new way. And that really does then instigate various crises. There are crises at work. There are crises at home. There's problems that erupt in their marriage because of this new dynamic. And one of the things we talked about that we appreciate about that film so much and Ray's film so much is even the antagonists aren't really ever bad guys. You know, the husband may have some selfishness and maybe a little bit of a sexist, but it feels right for the culture. And he really wants things to be right with her and wants to be a partner to her. He just has to overcome all of this tradition and this previous mindset. And he struggles with it, but they both struggle together. So for me, The Big City worked as a midlife crisis movie. You know what? You could almost say that it's the husband, really, who's having the midlife crisis. That's here. another point. You're right. I didn't even focus on him. But he He's goes down, an even, it yeah, by, he goes down wife, yeah. an even deeper rabbit hole in terms of really having to confront who he is and what he stands for. You're absolutely right. All right. Number one. Reliving the glory days, Adam, is better than acting like they never happened. That's Bob Parr in my number one pick, The Incredibles. 
He's talking, of course, of his days as Mr. Incredible, famed superhero. Now, when the movie starts, he's living this normal life in hiding slash retirement. He's an insurance adjuster, still moonlighting in crime prevention at night, but behind his wife's back. And that leads to all sorts of trouble for himself and his family. As an extra feature, each suit contains a homing device, giving you the precise global location of the wearer at the touch of a button. Well, darling, what do you think? Uh, What do I think? Bob is retired. I'm retired. Our family is underground. You help my husband resume secret hero work behind my back? I assumed you knew, darling. Why would he keep secrets from you? He, He wouldn't. Didn't. Doesn't. Men at Robert's age are often unstable, prone to weakness. What are you saying? Do you know where he is? Of course. Do you know where he is? This is written directed by Brad Bird, of course, who's now working on the sequel. And it really is this perfect metaphor for men who feel stuck in a rut at a certain age and make rash decisions in order to feel young. I love how Bob's wife picks up the clues here or lists the clues. She's voiced by Holly Hunter, the new sports car, the getting in shape, the blonde hair, yeah. the lies. <laughs> They're just all part of the package. Bonus points to The Incredibles for not only being a smart and funny midlife crisis movie, but also an action flick that I'm going to say, even though we gave the series a lot of love on last week's show, I think as an action flick, it even outdoes the Fast and Furious franchise. It might. <laughs> A great choice and one that was certainly an honorable mention for me and a good tie in with my number one, even though there are certainly no superheroes. No one would ever confuse Albert Brooks with a superhero. But in terms of that midlife crisis that fits kind of the conventional definition of getting to a point in your life where you do something rash and stupid because you want to try and establish some new identity and then you deal with the consequences of it. You have to look to Lost in America from 1985 with Julie Haggerty. This is one of the all-time great road trip movies as well because he plays this guy living in L.A. with his wife. They don't have any kids. He works for an ad agency, and he thinks he's going to get a promotion. And, of course, does he really even want the promotion? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? It doesn't matter. It's what he's supposed to get. He's entitled, he thinks, to this new title and this money. And when he doesn't get it, he reacts drastically, insults his boss, and he says, hey, Wife, quit your job. Let's pull an easy rider. Let's go ahead and sell all of our things, the house, anything we own, and basically travel the country in a Winnebago. And that's what they decide to do. Now, the problem is they leave L.A. with their nest egg, as they call it, and they get as far as Las Vegas. You can imagine what might go wrong in Las Vegas. So this one for me was an obvious number one just in terms of, as I said, that classic definition of hitting that point where you go, I've got to completely change who I am. And in the process, sometimes with some of our choices, you come to realize that you're pretty happy with who you are or that you just need to make a few changes in your life and you'll be happy. It doesn't quite go like that with David and Linda in Lost in America. There's certainly a futility that overrides everything in this film, but it's also hysterically funny. Oh, God. I guess this was my fault. That's what I'm thinking. Maybe I just didn't explain the nest egg well enough. If you had understood, you know, it's a very sacred thing, the nest egg. And if you had understood the nest egg principle, as we will now call it, in the first of many lectures that you will have to get, because if we are to ever acquire another nest egg, we both have to understand what it means. The egg is a protector like a god, and we sit under the nest egg, and we are protected by it. Without it, no protection. 
Want me to go on? It pours rain. Hey, the rain drops on the egg and falls off the side. Without the egg, wet, it's over. But you didn't understand it, and that's why we're where I we are. I understood the nest egg. Well, please do me a favor. Don't use the word. You may not use that word. It's off limits to you. Lost in America, my number one, and those are our top five midlife crisis movies. Josh, what about honorable mentions for you? My number six is probably Sideways, but I mentioned it recently, show 484. Also kind of an artistic crisis movie. It is a little bit. He's a novelist, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I had it on my list of top five sex-obsessed characters for Thomas Hayden Church's Jack. Floating Weeds, the Ozu film, artistic Partly two, but that actor reassessing his life. Yeah, good one. That was on a recent list for me as well. So set those aside. Fantastic Mr. Fox, definitely. You could also include the Wes Anderson films Rushmore and Life Aquatic, your beloved Life Aquatic, Adam. Mm -hmm. Lost in Translation, The World's End. About a Boy, Wonder Boys, and The Weatherman, great Nick Cage performance. You know how much I love The Weatherman. And of course, maybe even number seven would be old school. So funny. Yeah. I mean, no one needs middle aged men streaking. Didn't think about old school for this list, but you covered some of the ground I had in my honorable mentions and with your list, The Incredibles, It's a Wonderful Life, The World's End, all strongly in contention for me. I also thought about a recent film come up a few times here on the show. It is Only Lovers Left Alive from Jim Jarmusch. I mean, what do you constitute as middle age when you are immortal and you're That's a true. few thousand years old? But I like that. There's this sense of ennui. This you should kind have gone of, with that one. There you go. You know, I almost went with it. It's a really good film. I Love You, Alice B. Toklas, the comedy starring Peter Sellers, A Serious Man, the Coen Brothers comedy. And Cameron Crowe seems to be one of those filmmakers who you could basically say all of his movies, except maybe say anything, are films that feature characters going through a midlife crisis of sorts. Jerry Maguire would fit nicely with that list. And one other filmmaker I wanted to mention, this came to us via our Facebook page, Josh, David Adams Sven Amerman. That's what his name came up as on Facebook. It's, okay. It's wonderful. I really do hope that's his full name. <laughs> if you think about it, really anything that Charlie Kaufman writes is laced with some air of internalized catastrophe, and we almost always see this play out in the headspace of a middle-aged man. In varying degrees being John Malkovich, Adaptation, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Synecdoche, New York, and Confessions of Dangerous Mind all center around the dramatic arc of a midlife crisis. Incidentally, you could also use this list if you were to ever populate a list for the top five bad movie haircuts whether it's john cusack's (laughs) caveman puppeteer chic or sam rockwell and nicholas cage with their party city gene wilder afro wigs you can't have a charlie coffin movie without at least one character having a calamity atop their scalp so i thought that was very amusing and i think eventually how have we not done in 530 plus shows top five bad movie haircuts oh we'll get there oh it's coming for sure but charlie kaufman yeah, Charlie yeah, that, Kaufman and those films. I mean, those five really films good. that he mentioned, not Confessions for me, I think you like that a little bit more than I do, but Malkovich, Adaptation, Eternal Sunshine, Synecdoche, those are just four movies I love and could certainly be a top any top five list I do here, almost any top five list here on the show. So I don't know why I left them out other than a lot of them do also involve artistic That's crises, true. That's the only thing I was thinking about. Kind of wrote off. So thank you, David Adams, Sven Amerman, and thank you to everyone else who shared some pics on Twitter or Facebook. If you haven't shared your favorite midlife crisis movie already, send your pic or any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744, or find us on Twitter at Filmspotting is Adam. I'm at Larson on Film. We're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash filmspotting. Out in wide release, a new nature documentary from Disney, Monkey Kingdom, Paul Blart, Mall Cop, 
2, starring Kevin James and Unfriended. This is the cyberbullying found footage horror movie. I saw the preview before it follows. Thought it looked atrocious, and I wasn't trying to just be sort of a snobby anti-horror guy. I'm not really anti-horror. I just don't watch a lot of those movies. And yet there's our guy, Callum Marsh. 3.5 stars out of 4, that rare breed of horror film to invent a gimmick and perfect it all at once. You know, I saw that trailer too, and I can't say it jumped out at me as it was going to be brilliant, but there seemed to be a nugget there. Really? Well, the gimmick being they're all on screen, they're like in a chat room together, and people are getting knocked off. One of their friends who's died is reappears right. on their social media. Because she was the victim of some bullying yeah. and she's getting her it revenge. It also looked like it was really nasty yeah. <laughs> to have to sit but through. But I think it all takes place within that window. Like, I don't okay. think it ever goes outside. That's the gimmick. I could be wrong, but I don't think we ever go outside sort of the windows of those chat rooms. So it's uh, the way Blair Witch uh, reinvented yeah. things, maybe. We'll see if you trust Callum there. Gene Siskel Film Center is a place you might want to be if you're here in Chicago this weekend. What We Do in the Shadows is playing. We reviewed it on episode 527 and shared our top five mockumentary moments and Two Days, One Night, the new film from the Dardens with an Oscar-nominated performance from Marion Cotillard. That is a great lineup. It is indeed. Out in limited release, Child 44, our guy Tom Hardy, Numi Rapace, Gary Oldman, Patty Considine, Jason Clark, and Vincent Cassell. This is a great ensemble cast. The movie's set in 1952 Moscow about a suspected child murderer. I'm certainly intrigued about that one. As well as True Story. I'm sure you've seen some of the previews. Josh Jonah Hill and James Franco in, yes, a true story about journalist Michael Finkel. Finally, Clouds of Sils Maria, Olivier Asayas, his latest film. He made Carlos and Summer Hours. It's about an actress, Juliette Binoche, in a revival of a play that launched her career 20 years earlier. Kristen Stewart, a lot of love for her performance in this movie. Can't wait to see that movie. And I also can't wait to see a movie you've already seen, Josh, Ex Machina, from Alex Garland, the screenwriter of 28 Days Later, Sunshine, and a little movie. I like to proselytize for Never Let Me Go. It stars Oscar Isaac as a reclusive genius who tests his latest AI creation on Donald Gleason. Alicia Vikander inhabits the AI creation. You don't want to spoil our review because we are planning to get to it next week, but you kind of like this movie. This might be a little bit of a spoiler, but let's just say if you're in Chicago, two of my favorite films of the year are playing this weekend, What We Do in the Shadows and While We're Young, Ex Machina. Okay. I think that is a full-blown spoiler there, Josh. We are hoping to discuss that film, even though I'd love to get to the Aseas as well. Probably not going to happen. The top five is to be announced. If you have any great ideas tying in with Ex Machina, please do share them. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, and our world. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our music this week is by Ron Sexsmith. comes from his new album, Carousel One. More information is at ronsexsmith.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.